Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Phyllis Hunter. Phyllis is a literacy expert, a veteran educator, an author, and a relentless advocate for diversity in literature and the power of stories to change children's lives. She has worked as a district reading manager, a principal, and a speech and language therapist. A longtime friend of Scholastic, Phyllis is the creator of the wildly popular Phyllis C. Hunter Classroom Libraries, used in schools across the country. She is the author of the book, It's Not Complicated, What I Know for Sure About Helping Our Students of Color Become Successful Readers. People around the office know Phyllis as a speaker who can electrify crowds of educators. She once kicked off Teacher Week here with an impressive nod to James Brown. Take a listen. Oh, I feel nice, like sugar and spice. I feel nice, like sugar and spice. So nice, so nice, because I got all you. See what I'm saying? Thank you for joining us, Phyllis. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. It's good to be here. So you've inspired so many people over the years, Phyllis, with your books and materials for kids and your talks to educators. What inspires you? I never know what's going to inspire me. I take my inspiration from books that I read, people that I meet, things that I see. Uh, Being here in New York, I was inspired by Jennifer Hudson in The Color of Purple. Um, I saw her sing the role of Suge Avery, and I thought, how has she overcome all the things that have happened to her? And still being able to come out night after night and sing in the color purple, that inspired me. And when I see someone like that, it inspires me to do more. What's at the root of your passion for books and your life work helping teachers and parents turn children into readers, especially children of color? Probably Sister Marcelina. Um, I was educated (laughs) in Catholic schools, and uh, Sister Marcelina just wouldn't have it if you weren't a reader. It just was not going to go with her. And she used to say to me all the time, you're better than that. Whenever um, I would talk about a book, she would say, well, did you read this one? She never was satisfied. And I, I respected her, and I think she was the one who really got me started on books. But I have to say, I'm still there. I am still passionate about books. I went to a book exhibit yesterday at the Grow Your Library because they had a book on the 100 most impressive children's books. And they also had an exhibit on books, uh, books that look like books but are something else. And I guess it was my same kind of um, drive to always be involved with books and know everything I can about books that took me to the Grow Your Club to see those two exhibits. And it wasn't a waste of my time. I had a good time over there. <laughs> Did you sing? Did you break out into song? I didn't break out into <laughs> song, but the the 
when I saw the books that have been famous over the years, I thought about which ones that would I have included in that 100 list. So I'm always thinking about books. And frankly, I want to, one of the things I want to do right now is I want to make a list of African-American um, books of interest for kids, and I want to do it by grade level because I don't think anything like that exists. You can always find lots of recommendations, and I think it would be a, a good thing to have available. So I would, I'm would i going to be working on that. So I was inspired yesterday to come up with my own list of 100 books. Oh, good for you. I want to circle back to Sister Marcelina. <laughs> was she a Catholic nun? She was a Catholic nun. You got to credit the nuns with creative names. Yes. My goodness. I yes. had a Sister Charitina and there was a Sister Columba, but I've never heard the name Marcelina. Yes. Where, what state was this in? I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and um, my mother, we were not Catholic but my mother thought that the Catholic schools were the best schools. And so she said, that's where you will go. And my mother was the kind of person, much like Sister Marcelina, you didn't tell her, no, I, I'd rather go to the public school. You know, you went where she said you were going to go. And I certainly got a good education and I learned to read. Um, and reading was a big deal in Catholic school. I mean, being a good reader was prized. And um, you were rewarded for that. And and probably I think a lot about incentive programs now in schools because we had one. Um, we had our own little classroom library. We didn't have to go down the hall. It was right in our classroom. And so maybe that's why I collaborated with Scholastic to produce the Phyllis e. Hunter classroom libraries because I think it's so important for books to be a point of use. Yes. Well, we were going to ask you about that. You are a real advocate for classroom libraries. How do you go about choosing a classroom library? Well, first of all, I want to have lots of books available so that they can have choice. I think so much is involved with choice. We, we need to make sure that we have things available in all genres and nonfiction. And really one of the reasons why I have been associated with Scholastic over the years is not only because they give great bags at conferences, but because they have great books. They've always had covers that drew me in. They've always had a variety of topics. And so I think that's what should be in a classroom library. If they want to read about Hurricane Katrina, there should be a book there that they can read about. If they want to read about photography because they like to take pictures, I hope that's there. If they want to read the classics, I hope the library carries the classics. So I've been an advocate because some kids are not going to get to the public library. Some are not going to get to the school library, but everybody has access to books that are close at hand if you have a classroom library. So yes, I've always been an advocate for a classroom library. That really is the point you raise is something many people don't think about. Uh, my colleagues and I were listening to a group of teachers this week, one of whom I believe was from Chicago. She said her students live a block from the library and they never go. And she takes them once a year on a field trip just to get them inside to, to get some books and to choose books for themselves. It's rare that they go. Well, I'd give her a hug because mm -hmm. any person who 
gets a kid to a library situation has a place in heaven as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) That's wonderful. Uh, You're known for the statement, reading is a civil right. Can you tell us more about that concept and what it means for kids and what it means to you? Well, that came to me, I started off my teaching career in Chicago, and I realized that if my kids didn't leave good and strategic readers, they were not going to be able to access the remainder of their rights, Um, their right to good housing, their right to good health care, their right to be able to read a contract and and not be stuck with a balloon payment thinking it's a balloon. Um, Some of you get that on the way home. But I, I always have realized that if you aren't a good and strategic reader, you have less access to the best life that you p- could possibly have. You probably are going to have much more trouble getting into college. You're going to have trouble. So wherever you can master that, especially by nine years old, especially by the end of third grade. Uh, Because if our kids are good and strategic readers, they can then access the remainder of their rights. So I think, yes, reading is a civil right. I think it's something we owe kids in America. We know how to teach kids to read in America. We have a long history of doing that. It is not a puzzle. We have taught people who've come here from other countries. We've taught everyone who came through Ellis Island. We've taught uh, people whose, whose parents did not read. My father did not read past the eighth grade. That I was taught to read. So I'm just saying that we can do that in America, but we don't always do it for every child, every day in every classroom. So I coined that phrase to remind us that it is their civil right that we teach them to read. And we need to do it every day for every child in every classroom. Do you think we do it less well now than we did 50 years ago? I think we have a great divide. I think some, in some places we are doing it better than we ever have, but I think we have less middle we have less assurance that, that, that the majority of our kids will learn to read. Our top kids are learning to read. And I mean top kids, both African-American, white, Latino. All of our top kids everywhere are doing well. But we have too much bottom and not enough middle. We are referring way too many kids to special education because they can't read. A lot of it is because we have not taught them. And before we teach them, we decide that they are special ed. So let's teach them first is all I'm saying. Okay. All right. Uh, Phyllis, as you know, you're known around here as the woman with the eggplant story or the grocery (laughs) store story. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about this, tell our listeners this story and why you think it's such an important one for everyone to hear, especially parents. I think the eggplant story is part of my repertoire stories because Um, I was a speech and language therapist first, and I know how important oral language is and how oral language relates to reading. And many of our children who are experiencing reading difficulty, they really have had a lack of oral language preparation as well. So Hart and Reasley's study said the same thing, that some of our kids hear many more words than others and that it, it carries on with a deficit when they start to learn to read. So um, I was in the grocery store one night, late one night, and this is a true story, and I saw a mother and she looked pretty haggard. 
She was wearing some kind of uniform from a fast food establishment, and she had two kids with her. And she, the one that was riding in the basket looked to be a kindergartner, and the, the kid walking alongside could probably have been in junior high. So I already felt sorry for her because that's too much of a span. But the kid in the basket looked at this glistening pile of eggplant. She pointed to it, and she said, what's that? The mom said, shut up. Don't ask me any questions. It's too hot. Otherwise, I would have left you in the car. Now, in Houston, it was hot that night. I mean, it was probably 100 degrees because we have those kind of days. But I felt sorry for the kid because she didn't get any response or any answer at all to that question. And while I was standing there contemplating that, you know, maybe I should go over and say something, another mother walked up, and this mother had a kid in the basket about the same age. This kid looked over at the glistening eggplant and said, what's that? And the mother said, oh, it's eggplant, but we don't eat it. But at least the kid got a label, a name, the lowest level of Bloom's taxonomy or the de- de- the levels of knowledge. And then a third mother walked up, and she looked like maybe a Martha Stewart kind of woman. And she was in the grocery store produce section, probably getting something for some salad fixings or whatever. And she had a kid about the same age who looked at the same eggplant and pointed to it and said, what is that? And she said, oh, it's eggplant. Look at its smooth and shiny exterior. She picked it up and said, I estimate that this eggplant weighs about two pounds. The sign says $1.99 a pound. How much do you think this one would cost? $4. You're right. We should buy it. Take it home. Slice it open. I think it's a part of Italian cuisine. You remember your aunt made something called veal parmigiana? I think there's a dish called eggplant parmigiana. You like that veal parmigiana. We should go on the Food Network, look up the recipe, and make this. I'm going to buy it and take it home. Well, the kid is saying, it's late. This is way (laughs) more information than I want to know. But you see the difference in the three answers. I bet that last mom was a teacher. I bet she was too. She's probably coming from a late PTA meeting or something. (laughs) But it let me know how unlevel the playing field is going to be for those three kids. When that teacher reads a story about the farmer's market and talks about the eggplant, which one of those kids is going to have something to climb on? Some knowledge, some background knowledge too. So I always think that oral language is key to good readers. Uh, And what are some other ways that parents and teachers, you know, beyond oral language and getting kids excited about choosing books to get them enthused about books and reading in general? Pay attention to your children's interests. If you are a teacher, pay attention to the students you have and what their interest is. If you are a parent, pay attention to your children's interests. I haven't met met a 16-year-old that didn't want to read the driver's license manual. People read what they're interested in. So if you have a kid who's interested in taking pictures, get a book of photography. Get a book about a photographer. Gordon Parks is a wonderful photographer, and there's a children's book about him that just came out. Oh, really? So I know that uh, uh, any kid that was interested in taking pictures would be interested to read about his life. So pay attention to the interests of your children. My son is a doctor now, and he had asthma. He went to asthma camp, and they operated 
on a cow's heart. And I think that's what started his whole enthusiasm. So we got a book about the heart, the chambers of the heart, and he has always talked about it. And from the time he was eight, he said that's what he wanted to do. So I think if you pay attention to your children's interests and then you provide some books that mirror that interest, it's very important that kids see themselves in the books that they read. I think that's very true also about the hands-on experience. It really brings it to life for kids, you know, in tandem with reading. Uh, Your mantra is, it's not complicated, but it's not easy either. What do you mean? I mean, I think we know enough about how to teach kids to read. I think where it becomes not easy is we don't always put in place the things that we know work. Such as? Such as surrounding kids with a lot of good books to choose from. <laughs> I still walk in classrooms and see that they're they're just void of good classroom libraries and lots of interesting reading material. And especially if I go up in the grades, if, you know, I, I may see a pretty good classroom library and lots of books in pre-K, K, one, two, and three. But boy, you try four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and then that's a whole nother story. So we should still continue to teach reading in those upper grades, and we should still continue to provide lots of books for kids. And still read aloud. And still read aloud to them, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. We should still read aloud and have them read aloud to us. Because reading aloud is the only way that you can get a measure of how much fluency there is there. Listening to kids read aloud is the only way that you can l- listen to expression. You can listen to phrasing. Um, so you, you you really need to hear kids read aloud. I'm not talking about the old Sister Marcelina round robin <laughs> reading. In fact, I remember she never let me read too long. As soon as I would start, she would say, okay, next. <laughs> She knew I could read, but we all had to listen to Harold Vaughn and Harold. Oh, oh, it was painful listening to Harold read, you know, it was painful. But Sister Marcelina wanted to hear him because she had to estimate his his fluency and his accuracy and his expression. Did he make any progress by the end of the year? If you didn't make progress in Sister Marcelina's class, you were... You didn't make anything. You didn't go anywhere. She just made you do it (laughs) no matter what. That's pretty great. I I probably have a little bit of her teaching style. Just a little (laughs) bit. (laughs) Well, what has changed since you started out as a teacher in the field of education? What are some of the biggest changes you've seen to pedagogical approach or whatever? I think the biggest change is the technology that we have in the classroom. I mean, when I was teaching, the the most technological thing that I had was an overhead projector, <laughs> you know. Um, and so certainly it, it's changed in so many ways. Uh, I, I was so enamored with uh, a word processing program when, when they first came out. I, I just couldn't get over that you could move this word and put another word in it and you didn't, you know, I didn't have any more purple on my hands from dittos. And, you know, that was just, that. that is still amazing to me as we move now into more and more social media, such as this podcast. So, you know, I think things were pretty calm for a while. And then all of a sudden there's this explosion of different ways to do things. Right. And so ways true. to interest kids. 
So, you know, for example, if I wanted to bring music into my classroom, I had to go to the hall closet, find a, uh, you know, a record player, get an unscratched record and drag it down. You know, I mean, just things have just changed in so many ways as I've been teaching. And I think the biggest change for me has been the use of technology. Interesting. Well, you're visiting here from Houston. We're very happy to have you in New York City. You mentioned earlier that you saw the musical Hamilton last night. I did. Now, that's an old genre. I was <laughs> And yet they breathed new life into it. Yes, I, they have. What was it like? It's something a New Yorker has trouble getting tickets for. <laughs> Tell well, us. you know, it was like no other uh, musical I've seen. First of all, it was nonstop. There were no breaks. There was, it was it was constant music. And yes, they the lyrics were in the hip-hop uh, venue, and you had to listen hard in order to catch everything. Um, certainly, there was, there was, as every musical has, there was a, a chorus that was fantastic movements and dancing going on, and also a circular stage moving. So it was much like the, the way things are for the kids today. It was nonstop. Uh, I could see it again because there were things I know I missed, but I loved the way they told the story. They told Hamilton's story in a way that we could all relate to it. You know, they they showed him with his crew, you know, the guys that he hung out with and um, and how they supported him and how they came to dis- decisions and um, there's one song in in Hamilton that says it's about getting a uh, getting in the room, getting a seat at the table. And um, I think women are still trying to get a seat at the table. I think minorities are still trying to get a seat at the table. So there was a lot to relate to in that in that musical, and it was it was very hip hop. It was very fresh, and I think if I were a history teacher or really anything having to do with American, um, looking back at American history. I'd take my students to see that. I'd beg, borrow, and steal so in order to get a class to go. And I'm sure lots of people are taking their kids to see it. I bet they are. I bet they are. So as we wrap up, I'd love, you know, there are many teachers out there. They have, as you know, huge, huge challenges, and they're often unappreciated, underpaid. What message do you have for them as they're working you know, with their hearts and souls to educate children. Okay, my message to you is you are not paid what you're worth. That's my first message. But just because you're not paid what you're worth, don't underestimate your worth to the students that you have because they are depending on you and it's our job to get them where they need to be. No, we don't acknowledge teachers in America in the way that we should, but let me tell you, what you do is valuable. And also, I'm going to tell you that you have the wherewithal to do it. Listen to your heart. Listen to your soul. You can get it done. You know, as a teacher, I think several principles of mine refer to me as a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> There's an understatement. Be, behind my back, I hope. But but I, it always got back to me. Because, yes, I if I didn't have something I needed, I went to the PTA and asked him for it. If the principal didn't give it to me, I put it in writing and I went down to the corner Walgreens and said, could you give me this? Whatever it was that I needed for my kids, I got it for them. Teachers, you have that power to do. And I know many of you do that, but I just want to say that there's a place for you in heaven if you 
teach our kids to read, if you know the importance of your job, even though you may not be paid the way you're supposed to, just know that your work is good. All right, Phyllis, would you mind reading an excerpt from your book, It's Not Complicated? Certainly. I hear it all the time. Kids these days don't like to read. Kids these days are lazy. Kids these days spend all their time playing video games and watching TV. Well, guess what? It's not true. Kids these days are reading and writing as much as ever, and in some cases more than ever. It all depends on a simple question. What do we consider reading? If we're talking Hamlet or the Federalist Papers, kids may not be reading as much. But if we recognize the time they spend on the Internet with social media as opportunities for reading and writing, then the number of minutes kids these days spend on both is not declining. Thank you so much, Phyllis. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. We did want to acknowledge here the untimely loss of a beloved scholastic colleague, Patrick Daly. Patrick worked closely with Phyllis over the years. They shared a passion and boundless talent for helping disenfranchised children learn how to read. Patrick began his career as a teacher in his home state of Vermont. After passing a farm sale one day, he bought a clawfoot bathtub on a whim. It became his classroom library. A student later recalled having read James and the Giant Peach in the bathtub. Patrick himself was a peach. We will miss him. Thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle.